From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, former secretaries of state Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice, they both grew up in Denver, shared a mentor, and in a virtual discussion hosted by the University of Denver, they addressed threats to democracy, the effects of COVID-19 on national security, and honoring differences. I think we need to respect why people are coming from where they're coming from and make it a point to listen. And you should be open to the possibility that you might actually be wrong. Plus, their relationship running in political and diplomatic circles. Then, has the pandemic made people want to buy health insurance? This past year, many more Coloradans signed up for individual plans on the exchange. We'll ask what's behind that on this, the first day of open enrollment... You can donate most vehicles to Colorado Public Radio, including cars, trucks, and motorcycles. And you can donate them in any condition, on one condition. The title has to be in your name. You'll also have to answer a few simple questions like, Where is your car? And when would you like us to pick it up? Simple work to make a big impact. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today we drop in on a conversation between two powerful trailblazers, Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice. Albright became the first woman to serve as Secretary of State in 1997. A few years later, Rice became the first black woman in the role. They have different worldviews. Albright is a Democrat and served under Bill Clinton. Rice is a Republican who worked for George W. Bush. But they share geography. Both grew up in Denver and have strong ties to the University of Denver, where Albright's father, Joseph Corbell, was a professor. The University School of International Studies is now named for him. The two former secretaries recently spoke by video conference to a DU audience about their lives and about issues ranging from the country's deep divisions to the impact of COVID-19 on national security. So some excerpts today, and we'll start with Albright, who explains how her connection with Rice began. I'm an immigrant. We came to the United States in 1948. My father had been a Czechoslovak diplomat, and he defected and asked for political asylum. And then he needed a job. And so what happened was that in 1949, the Rockefeller Foundation found him a job at the University of Denver as a professor. And he loved teaching. He hadn't done that before. And he said, there is nothing better than to be a professor in a free country. He also used to talk about the fact that Americans didn't fully understand how fragile democracy was, but also how resilient. And so those are the kinds of lessons. And I think Condi grew up with the same kind of stories. My father died in 1977. And by then he was a pretty big deal in Denver. And so there were a lot of state tributes and things to him at his funeral and lots of flowers and various things. But among them was this ceramic pot in the shape of a piano with leaves in it. So I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. Turns out Corbell and Rice didn't just share an interest in international relations. They both had a deep love of music. 
I figured I had to get noticed somehow because I knew there were going to be a lot of flowers there. And it seems to have worked. It got Madeline's attention anyway. Here's Rice picking up the origin story. How did I first hear about Madeline Albright? Well, her father kept telling me that he had this daughter and he wanted me at some point to meet his daughter, uh, Madeline. And so I had heard about Madeline before she had heard about me. She was uh, already starting to make her name uh, in the halls of academia and government. But I also have to go back just a moment to say that uh, Madeline's story is how the University of Denver received an immigrant. Uh, immigrant family. My University of Denver story is how the University of Denver received a Black family from segregated Birmingham, Alabama, because uh, my, my father started studying at the University of Denver when I was six years old. Every summer, he and my mother and I would drive across the country from Birmingham, because in those days, if you were Black, you couldn't go to the University of Alabama. Eventually, the family moved permanently to Denver, where Rice's father, John, completed a master's degree and went to work for the university, first as an assistant dean, later as an associate vice chancellor. Condoleezza Rice graduated from a Denver-area high school at age 16 and enrolled at DU. She dreamed of becoming a professional pianist and chose a music major, but those hopes faded. And so I came back and I tell my parents, Mom and Dad, I'm changing my major. What are you changing your major to, dear? I don't know. You don't know what you're going to do with your life. Well, it's my life. Well, it's our money. Find a major. And uh, fortunately, I wandered into a course the third quarter of my junior year in international politics taught by a man named Joseph Corbell. And he was the best teller of stories to elucidate issues of diplomacy and international politics. Uh, he would use not only his own stories, but stories from history. And I just really remember being captivated by this person who had all of this experience, but could convey it in a way that made me want to study it. Rice was working with Corbell on her doctorate when he died. Another decade went by. She and Albright still hadn't formally met, but by now they were on similar career paths. In 1987, Albright was recruiting advisors for Democrat Michael Dukakis's presidential campaign. She telephoned Rice. And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father. Fast forward several more years. Albright was asked to write an essay about her father. Rice, at that point, was national security advisor to President George W. Bush. Once again... Albright called Rice. This time, the discussion turned to race. We got together. We were talking about what did my father believe in? I said my father believed in a moral foreign policy. And Condi, I don't, not sure you fully remember this, but you said the United States can't have a moral foreign policy given the original sin of slavery. Um, and we began to talk about what American foreign policy should be like. And this essay that really kind of made us see uh, our different backgrounds and our different way of seeing what America was about. Yeah. And if I, if I could just pick up there, because it also comes back to the University of Denver and something that my dad did that maybe has passed into history's uh, annals. But I always felt because of the original sin of, of slavery that America's best a selling point, if you will, about democracy was that we were an imperfect democracy. 
and that in fact, uh, democracy is something that you have to keep working at every day. And when I would go and and uh, promote the freedom agenda, I would say to people, I don't look at the United States through rose-colored glasses. I couldn't even go to a restaurant uh, in Birmingham, Alabama until I was eight years old. But I do know that America is a place where uh, a little girl from segregated Birmingham, Alabama became Secretary of State. And that's a pretty remarkable story about the journey. But my father, uh, when he came to the University of Denver in 1969, Denver had 10 black students and he just found this uh, appalling. And so uh, he worked very hard with Chancellor Mitchell and, uh, and Vice Chancellor John Blackburn. And uh, they began to recruit students, a lot of them from the South. And my father started a program called the Black Experience in America. It was a two credit course on Monday nights. And uh, he called it an attitude change class. He said, I just want to expose the students to what the Black American experience has been like. He had unbelievable speakers in this this, uh, series, including some that would now turn heads. Stokely Carmichael spoke in this series. Louis Farrakhan spoke in this series. Fannie Lou Hamer spoke in this series. Dick Gregory spoke in this series. And so it was hardly, my father was a Republican, but it was hardly a kind of hit parade of conservative speakers that he brought to talk about the Black experience in America, because he felt that we were just on the cusp of having gotten through the formal uh, part of the civil rights movement, the passage of voting rights laws and and, uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but we still didn't know each other very well, he felt. And uh, I always thought that that was something maybe the University of Denver didn't know that it had done. So having shared their personal stories for that audience at DU, Rice and Albright moved on to questions. The first one about challenges to democracy now and in the future. Well, I think that the challenge is uh, to recognize we have these remarkable institutions that the Founding Fathers uh, bequeathed us. And at, at the near end of the 18th century, it was kind of a risky bet that you could create this self-governing society. Uh, you could create these institutions through which people would channel their passions as well as their desire for change. Someone said that we had a, a spirit of constitutionalism. And I still think to this day, Americans seek the Constitution as their personal protection. Uh, I will take you to the Supreme Court if you violate my rights, the Brown versus the Board of Education. And so the institutions are really quite remarkable. And one thing that I always emphasized when I was abroad is that the best guarantee against uh, the return of tyranny is to have strong institutions. I worry today that there is a cynicism about those institutions. There is um, a tendency to dismiss them. We have populists who want to go around them directly to the people. The founding fathers understood that you had to uh, channel passions through institutions and populists appeal directly to the sometimes worst instincts of, uh, of people. And so I ask myself almost every day, how can we rekindle faith in those institutions, in the rightness of them, and in the fairness of them? For me, it comes down to uh, any number of ways, but the one that I would focus on most is uh, people have to believe that they have a chance to access the so-called American dream. But without a high-quality education, you can't do that. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about how we get to the place that we no longer have third graders who can't read, 
and 22-year-olds who get out of a college degree with no identifiable job skills and 40-year-olds who can't be retrained. And so I see a direct link between the fact that a lot of people feel that they can't really access what is best about America and uh, the lack of faith in our institutions. I have been very disturbed by the kinds of things that have been going on. I think the part that has bothered me now is uh, what is going on in terms of what do people know about what, where do facts come from, and the various issues that we're dealing with in terms of how people know what is happening. I really do think there is a question now. And a book that I wrote that is probably the most provocative is Fascism, A Warning. I really wanted to know what that was about. And I went back and I actually looked at what uh, how fascism had begun, which it did with Mussolini. There was this demagogic outsider who motivated people. The best quote in the whole book comes from Mussolini. And he said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. And that is what I think was kind of happening in the United States. And the major thing that Mussolini did was to identify with one group at the expense of another, who then became the scapegoats and believed that, you know, he was above the law and that there was not important to have uh, information. And so that is what worries me now in terms of the things that we have been, I think, in many extent, artificially divided to blame somebody else. We need to talk to each other more. I don't like the word tolerance uh, because tolerate is just put up with. I think we need to respect why people are coming from where they're coming from and make it a point to listen. And we're not doing that enough. But the main issue now is how are we getting our information? Each talked about threats to democracy. Rice cited a lack of trust in institutions. Albright pointed to the need for respect in public discourse. Well, DU Chancellor Jeremy Hafner picked up on that theme of respect for a question about how it should apply on university campuses. Here's Rice, who, by the way, now teaches at Stanford. I have spent a lot of my life in the university, and I still spend my life in the university. It's not a good situation in our universities today. First of all, Madeline mentioned the way we get our information. That's not just a problem of the universities, but thanks now to uh, my network, my uh, aggregators, my websites, uh, I can actually spend time uh, in my echo chamber with my tribe, only hearing people who agree with me. And then when I run into somebody who thinks differently or speaks differently, I think they're either stupid or venal. And so we aren't able, I think, to talk across because we don't get our information across. We tend to get it in uh, in pretty curated ways for that really kind of underscore our own belief in the greatness of our own opinions. And that's very dangerous in democracy. I tell my students all the time, if you're constantly in the company of people who say amen to everything you say, find other company, because you will never test your ideas against uh, others. And by the way, you should be open to the possibility that you might actually be wrong, which is not so easy to convince 19-year-olds of that. But there also is a bit of a chill because we've somehow gotten ourselves into uh, the idea in universities that we want people to be comfortable. I actually don't. 
I want my students to be uncomfortable. I want them to be uncomfortable with challenge, with new ideas, with things that they haven't heard, with people who are different. I tell them very often, um, you don't have a constitutional right not to be offended. And if actually someone offends you, why don't you, before you mobilize the university, uh, why don't you actually turn to that person and say, you know, that was offensive and here's why. And maybe you can have a conversation about why that was offensive. And now you begin to know each other's world. And oh, by the way, when you commit offense, maybe somebody will then forgive you in the same way. And so everything about us now is uh, an attempt to uh, soften the edges of human interaction to decomplexify history. Look, I don't see why the United States of America would have military bases named after Confederate generals. They were traitors. But I don't see why the United States of America would want to not have schools named for Abraham Lincoln or for George Washington or to acknowledge uh, that the United States of America was founded, uh, at least to the West, on Indian lands in very brutal ways, but that that's a part of the history that can't be somehow expunged. Madeline and I both uh, studied communist countries, and there was always the photo that you airbrushed somebody out of it uh, because you didn't want them in history. We're dangerously close to doing that uh, in our own renderings of history just to make ourselves feel good and feel comfortable. And it's a huge mistake. I also think, Condi, when you just were describing the kind of speakers that your father had at the university, that is really uh, difficult to do at this point, I think. I am teaching now, I'm teaching graduate students, but one is a little bit nervous in terms of afraid that you're going to use some word wrong or um, that it will have implications that you were not thinking about and trying to get them to disagree with each other. So, but I do think the universities are on very uh, delicate ground at this time. So the other thing, because both Condi and I have not only been, but taught about decision-making, the part that is absolutely essential when you are doing national security decision-making is to have somebody, when you're in a a meeting of the principals, you want somebody to disagree. I mean, you need to have alternative voices, not just a bunch of people that are yes, yes. And I always talked about those meetings as, um, you know, you like to get some agreement before you present it to the president, but if you can't get some agreement, you go and argue in front of the president and it makes you, have to know what you're thinking about and to respect those that have different views. And if there isn't that alternative view um, in a decision-making process, you have robbed your country of uh, good advice. And so I think there's a lot that has to be done now, but it goes back to where does our information come from? Um, And the truth is we don't all know. That is the part that is difficult in terms of the, the magic of technology and the the downside of it. Finally, as they neared the end of their conversation, Secretaries Albright and Rice addressed a question about the effects of COVID-19 on national security. I was actually national security advisor when SARS hit in uh, 2001, 2002. And uh, we talked at that point and talked throughout about better preparation. And I think the answer to the question, how much will this affect us in the future is really how can we get better prepared? 
I think it's partly um, an intelligence function, if you will, earlier warning. Um, I think the business community actually knew what was going on in this pandemic before the government did, because they had these global operations and they were seeing what was happening in the spread. I think we now do know how to mobilize the scientific community, and that's something that we should continue to work on. But I have to say that I think my biggest disappointment is that the international community has been really pretty much sidelined. It's been the revenge of the sovereign state, my PPE, my citizens, my travel restrictions. And uh, if we're going to rebuild some uh, semblance of international cooperation around these issues, which we do need because these pandemics do not confine themselves to borders, I think that's going to have to be an intentional effort uh, to rebuild the institutions of the international community that can help with these, with these uh, pandemics. I think, though, it is also a good learning experience in terms of understanding that our security and our health does depend on what happens in other countries. And one of the things that I keep pushing and have in various segments of my life is the relationship between domestic and foreign policy and understanding uh, our responsibility, the interdependence that is out there as the, uh, the kind of real symbolism of what is happening in the 21st century makes it very different in so many ways and very evident. Um, and I must say the kinds of things that the Bush administration did in terms of health and PEPFAR and different things, Condi, that you guys worked on, I think uh, was very much a sign of understanding that interrelationship. Yes, yes. You heard Albright there refer to PEPFAR. That's a global AIDS relief program that began under George W. Bush. Excerpts of former Secretaries of State Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice from a conversation sponsored by the University of Denver are thanks to DU for the audio. That conversation was recorded before the death of General Colin Powell. He served as Secretary of State between Albright and Rice. Here's Albright speaking with NPR the day after Powell died. He was truly an incomparable man in every way and uh, incredibly smart, dedicated to this country. Um, and uh, turned out we were got to be very, very good friends. And um, he was somebody that understood what our country needed and had served it with uh, great honor. And here's Rice on ABC's The View. Colin will be remembered for his integrity. He will be remembered for his uh, dignity. And uh, he'll be remembered by me as just a really, really great friend. General Powell will be laid to rest in a private ceremony at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., Friday. Back in a moment, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's still time to fill out your 2021 election ballot, and we have help to make the process as easy as possible. I'm Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News Director. The free voter's guide from CPR News and Denverite is online now. You'll learn about the statewide initiatives on this year's ballot, plus other useful information like how to register to vote, all of it in plain language. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 voter's guide. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. If you buy your own health insurance, as hundreds of thousands of Coloradans do, it's go time. Open enrollment on the state's exchange begins today. 
And we're curious what signups look like in a pandemic when healthcare is top of mind. The CEO of Connect for Health Colorado, that's the exchange, is on the line. Kevin Patterson. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Nationally, open enrollment runs through January 15th, but Colorado is one of a select number of states to announce permanent extended open enrollment. Who doesn't like more time to shop? Uh, what exactly does that mean for people looking for health care plans? So, Ryan, I think that's a great question. One of the things that we have learned through the pandemic is folks need ample opportunity to come through and figure out when things are changing in their lives. And one of the things that changed federally is that there's going to be an opportunity for folks to come through a little bit more often if they have a life change event or they're at a certain level of poverty. But rather than get into the details, what I try to make sure people know is while we talk about open enrollment today, we want to make sure that they know that they can come to the exchange any time of the year, not just go time, as you said. Um, but we have a number of different options that we can help them figure out what's going on in their lives. If they have a job change, a baby, change in their marital status, there's a number of ways that we can provide assistance to uh, Coloradans for a number of different reasons. That's right. If you have a life event, some big change in your life, there's a kind of year-round open enrollment. But um, this particular open enrollment is for folks who may not have those watershed moments. We were indeed uh, curious about signups. So in 2021, Connect for Health saw about 36,000 new enrollments, meaning there are more than 215,000 Coloradans on the exchange. I understand that's about an 11% increase over the previous year. Did the pandemic jolt people into getting health insurance or is something else going on? So I, I do think that the pandemic got folks to really focus on maybe there is a real reason I need to make sure I'm buying the health insurance. Um, but I also think that during the pandemic, we saw a lot of things happening with people's job related coverage. Uh, people just decided to, you know, ha had to be uh, at home for a while. Folks had different negative imp impacts on their jobs. And I think it just, there were a number of those things happening at the same time. And so while, yes, I, I do believe very clearly that the pandemic did get people to pay attention, I also think that business owners and, the, and especially small business owners and their employees really began to think about, well, if we're going to try to keep our doors open, uh, do we provide insurance at, at work? Or do we begin to look at the exchange and say, maybe there is an opportunity because of what we're paying mm. that it might make sense for folks to go over and, and get their insurance over on the exchange. And I think that has helped us with some growth. And we've been able to help folks in a pretty, uh, pr pretty tight predicament. Yeah. So there are subsidies for some folks on the exchange. And as part of the American Rescue Plan, I understand there is support as well. But it sounds like uh, it is a combination of people who are employed who might have joined the exchange and those whose employment circumstances changed that might have joined, all a function, of course, of the economic realities of the pandemic. According to a new health access survey, there are about 380,000 uninsured Coloradans. That's about 6.6% of the population. And the most since the Affordable Care Act went into effect in 2014. Does that number trouble you, Kevin? It, it troubles me, but I, I can't say I'm surprised. I, I think 
when we talk to our, our, our customer base, what we are finding out is, you know, of the folks that applied in 2021, didn't know that they could receive financial help. Um, so two out of those three folks, you know, don't understand that they could actually get financial results mm. or they think, well, I make too much. Um, and, and I try to remember to tell people it's private insurance for folks that are working, that are making more than you would qualify for Medicaid. So it, it is for folks that are out there going to work every day. And maybe just because they are at a very small business, they don't have a, either any health insurance coverage there, or they may not have a great health insurance option there. So they have to work with their employer to figure that out. But if their employer doesn't offer anything, we're, we're a really good option for folks. And especially with the American Rescue Plan, folks are seeing pretty screaming deals. Well, this is important to note. So there are many Coloradans, you say, who would qualify for help buying private health insurance who don't know that, assume that they can't afford it and are therefore uninsured, something no doubt you'd like to see change. Do you see racial or other disparities when you look at who's uninsured right now? You know, the the thing that we can't verify as closely is, you know, we can't require people to uh, identify by racial uh, ethnicity, any of those things. Mm -hmm. But when people do, we do see what the impacts are uh, in certain communities. And so I think it's easy to extrapolate that we know that folks of color, folks in certain um, poverty statuses in some in certain rural communities and in cities are, are eligible. And we just need to work with our community-based organizations, with our sister network, to make sure we're reaching uh, every corner of the state, literally. And, and I think there's a lot of work we can do on the front range. And we've got really good community connections with our brokers and our assistance network in our rural communities. And I think we've got a little more work that we could do to reach more people in the urban corridor. In all but one county, Coloradans will have several plans to choose from during open enrollment. The exception is Jackson County near the Wyoming border, home to Walden, Colorado. Uh, there, I think it's just one plan people can turn to. Give us Correct. a quick reminder before we go of where the semi-public option stands that lawmakers passed earlier this year. That doesn't come to fruition immediately. No, what what I think folks need to understand is the conversation the state is having really is around standard plans. And the great thing about standard plans, it will allow folks to understand how to compare plans. You know, one of the great things about Colorado is that we have a great deal of competition. We have eight carriers and we've added 98 different plans on the exchange. The bad thing about that is that we have eight carriers and we've added 98 plans on the exchange. It's a lot for people to kind of go through when you're used to employer-sponsored care where you might have one, two, three carriers sometimes at the most and just a couple of different options. And so you're probably dealing with four, six, eight options. And, you know, here we are with almost a couple hundred. And so for me, it's, it's, what I don't want people to think is that we're we're still talking about private health insurance. We're just talking about a way to compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges, so you know what you're buying. Because my, my theory is if our customer understands what they're buying, they will be happy with their insurance. They'll understand how to use it. And I think we have a good deal of work to 
work with uh, our state partners to make sure people understand how to use their insurance and and, and how to leverage their dollar as much as possible. Kevin, we have uh, just under a minute. Mm-hmm. Ha- has insurance, has the exchange, of course, created by Obamacare, has it become a political football? I mean, as we look towards elections on the horizon in a few in a few seconds. Uh, in a few seconds, man, that's unfair, Ryan. Uh, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, yes and no. I think it's a football, but rather than being kicked, it's much easier to be caught. Um, and so you have to think of what you're doing with the football more so than being a target. And I think, but by, by showing our value to our legislature, to our federal partners, but more importantly to our customers, I think we have shown the value we try to bring to the table, help people understand where to shop. And no matter where you're buying your insurance, we just say, just come see if you can learn something from us. We're happy to help you. We're agnostic about where you go. We just want to make sure you get covered. Kevin, thank you. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Kevin Patterson, CEO of Connect for Health Colorado, the state's health insurance marketplace. Again, open enrollment begins today. Children ages 5 to 11 could get vaccinated against COVID-19 as soon as this week. CPR's Jenny Brundine talked with parents and kids about this long-awaited option. The first kid I ask about whether or not he'll get the COVID vaccine is... John Thomas Barton IV. What was that again? John Thomas Barton IV. That's John Thomas Barton IV, who is in fourth grade and has already had four other immunizations. Four, so I already know what the pain's going to feel like. I really want to get this vaccine because then I know if anyone has COVID, I won't, my system will be able to fight it. Following the FDA's actions, the CDC is set to consider how to best use the vaccine, and kids could start getting the shots in early November. A recent poll by Ipsos shows two in three parents of 5 to 11-year-olds plan to get their kids vaccinated. Cree Mortensen is not one of them. Just not something I trust right now, maybe later, but not right now, no. Mortensen says she's researched the vaccine and has thought a lot about it. She got COVID once. Her vaccinated mom got a breakthrough case three months ago and is still having trouble breathing. But to Mortensen, that just means... I'm going to get it either way. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like the flu, so... But she says she won't stop her son, who's in second grade, if he wants the vaccine. I head to another park. Cerulean, Jaquiel, come here real quick, baby. Javier Toussaint is vaccinated. He has five children. He's frustrated that some people won't listen to the experts, the scientists and doctors. He says he'd never argue with his mechanic. If I take my car in there and he's like, look, transmission is shot and I don't even know how you made it here. I'm not going to sit there and be like, "Ah, it's my pistons. And so I'm I'm not with people doing that to doctors. Doctors have helped out his 11-year-old who has the sickle cell trait. She's healthy, but has had her spleen taken out, which is part of the immune system. As soon as they make it available for somebody in her spectrum, immediately. The Ipsos poll shows black parents are significantly more concerned about their kids getting COVID than whites. Toussaint says he wishes more people understood that some things we do are for the community, just like this playground. Parents like Katie Evans agree. She says children aren't politicizing this. Adults are by insisting either I'm right or else. 
And that's not how a community works together. To protect our kids, we're putting our egos in front of our children's futures, and I don't think that's right. For her, vaccines will keep children learning inside schools and will lessen teachers' anxiety. You know, not having to go home with this anxiety every single day about which kid brought COVID to school today. Chevelle is her nine-year-old daughter. I'm not a big fan of needles, but I do want to be more safe, so I don't really know what to say. Like, maybe half and half. But she says she knows it will keep her safe. She'll eventually get it. Probably not right away, right away. But a bit down the road. Her mom agrees. They'll wait a bit to see how the rollout goes. Other parents seem overwhelmed by the avalanche of opinions swirling around. So much so, they've just withdrawn. We don't really think about the COVID. Because I think it sucks you in, like it, it, it makes you nervous, it makes you scared if you watch the news. It's just chaotic. Juanita Gonzalez, a mother of a 10 and 12 year old, says she feels better not engaging. She wants to wait until she feels 100% certain. When I make that decision for my family to get vaccinated, I want to feel comfortable for myself and for my family. Not because everybody else is doing it, not because hurry, hurry, do it, you know. For other kids and families, they are ready now because it's a chance to get back to normal. For the past year and a half, some families have done everything except school outside. No movies, no restaurants, no indoor play dates. Here's 10-year-old Vivian Jones quizzing her friend Esther Colburn, also 10. What do you think you're going to do after you get both vaccines? Have a sleepover, paint my nails, and get my ears pierced. Do you think you're going to go to friends' houses after you get the vaccine? Are you asking this because you want a sleepover? Whether it's about the sleepovers or to keep rising numbers of kids out of the hospital, if the vaccine is approved, 28 million children will be waiting for their parents or guardians to decide. And that is CPR's Jenny Brundine. Children's Hospital Colorado is planning vaccine clinics for kids ages 5 and older as soon as this Friday, pending the CDC's final recommendation. Hanging Lake, that stunning turquoise body of water above Glenwood Canyon, has been threatened by wildfire and marred by mudslides. Now, scientists are searching for the source of the springs that feed the iconic lake so they can save it. Hydrologist Tom Ailey leads that effort and spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. The landscape where Hanging Lake's water originates was blackened. You've called it cooked and scorched uh, by last year's Grizzly Creek fire. Hanging Lake's many fans were relieved when the fire stopped short of the lake itself. But you say that relief may have been a bit premature. Why is that? The lake is fed by springs. The springs get their water from areas that were burned. Right now, we don't know where that recharge area is. And the recharge area for a spring is the land area that contributes water to that spring. So the primary thing we are working on right now is delineating the recharge area for the spring flow that feeds Hanging Lake. 
Why is it so important to figure out the source of the water that feeds Hanging Lake rather than just taking a look at the water in the lake? The importance of determining the recharge area is if you don't know where it is, you really cannot assess the impacts it has had. And so what you do, you inject colored dyes into Hanging Lake's possible water sources. They're some of the same very sensitive dyes used in medical imaging tests. For example, they're used to track the movement of blood through arteries. How does this work in the wilds of a mountaintop? Do you pour a color into a spring and then watch for it to come out in the lake? No, it's not quite that simple. You will never see the color because we are doing traces where the dye concentrations are in the parts per billion and often parts per trillion. Detecting them, we have samplers in place that accumulate the tracer dyes. The samplers are sent to our laboratory where we do an analytical assessment of them and we can identify and quantify the amounts of each of the dyes we're using. And you're not studying streams that are running down the mountainsides visibly above Hanging Lake. These waters run through underground mazes before they tumble into the lake, into these beautiful waterfalls. Describe the journey these water sources take. The water infiltrates through a little bit of soil and into the limestone. It's a maze system. It goes through a couple thousand feet of vertical relief to get to the spring. A lot of the water sinks in what are called losing streams, streams that lose water to the underground system. In this first phase of the tracing work, we're putting the tracer dyes in the losing streams. That water will sink flow through the network of solutional openings in the limestone, and if it is within the recharge area, will come out of Hanging Lake where we can detect it. And the journey the water takes is actually where Hanging Lake picks up its unique blue color. What turns the water blue? That's called the Tyndall effect. It's light scattering due to the dissolved calcium carbonate derived from the limestone in the water. You'll see similar blue water in springs in the Ozarks, for example, in Florida, and many other places where you have very deep pools of spring water. But let's say I just were to take up a jug of Hanging Lake water and take it home. Would it look just like any other water, or would it look different? more blue. If you expected it to be blue, you would be disappointed. It would look just like any other water. So Hanging Lake was also threatened by mudslides this summer. They destroyed the hiking trail to the lake and temporarily turned the lake into this muddy brown pond. It's back to blue now, but you say there's also reason to worry about the mud for less obvious reasons. Explain that. The mud is important because it can interfere with the deposition of the travertine. But more than the mud, I'm concerned with the balance of how much mineral, how much calcium carbonate 
you have dissolved in the water now and whether this will permit travertine to continue depositing. And what would be the issue with that? Water from precipitation, as it moves through the leaf litter on the forest floor and through the upper layers of the bedrock and the soil, picks up carbon dioxide gas. That is the dissolving agent that allows the water to dissolve rock that eventually becomes the travertine at the lake. When you have a fire, you are destroying the mechanism that is generating the carbon dioxide that allows the water to dissolve the rock. You have had a very severe fire in at least parts of the recharge area for the spring. So the question that concerns me is whether the damage has been so severe that it will change the quality of the water and its ability to dissolve the rock and then to precipitate travertine. And that's a question, the answer to which we will not know for some period of time. And how soon do you expect to pinpoint the source of Hanging Lake's water and the extent of that damage to the source? We have started three traces. Um, If we get some good rains between now and snowfall, I hope to have some results by this fall. We will have a lot more in the spring once we've had snow melt. And we expect to do another phase of traces next summer. So really the answer is probably about a year from now. Officials hope to have Hanging Lake open again next summer. It would be a smaller trail for a reduced number of hikers rather than the thousands who used to climb to the lake each year. Based on your studies so far, do you think that'll be feasible? And do you think visitors will find the same turquoise waters? The water may still be the same turquoise color. It's hard to imagine that everything is back to a condition as wonderful as it was before. The fire did serious damage in the recharge area. You don't have catastrophes like this where it recovers in in a year or for that matter in just a few years. It's going to take a long time. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to do it. Thank you. Hydrologist Tom Ailey speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Ailey owns Ozark Underground Laboratory. His firm is charged with finding the source of Hanging Lake's water so the place can be better preserved. And always nice to learn a new word, travertine, a type of limestone. Finally today, Hispanic Heritage Month recently wrapped up, and we've been celebrating with music and wanted to squeeze in one more act— The Mañanas, whose members have roots in Spain and Ecuador. Singer and guitarist Brandon Upingo formed the Denver band with bassist Danny Pauta. They fused the lyrical style of Bob Dylan with the alternative rock sound of The Strokes and Outkast. The Mañanas released their debut album Cheers in April. Here's their most recent single, Don't Think Your Love Is Given Up. Break up, break just a little bit. 
The Mananas of Denver and their song, Don't Think Your Love Has Given Up. For more Latin music exploration, our colleagues at Indie 1023 have curated a list of local talent. Check it out at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today with a list of our talents. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. We'll be with you manana. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Shoving the words right through my skull.